with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I'm Aida Osman. I played the judge in the third episode of The Undoing. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows, but that was me. That was, I you're, was an, also, you're an Asian I was also man. an All Rise. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look at you remembering judges. <laughs> <laughs> that was what The Good Wife was for. There would always be like some beloved like 60-something actress as a judge, and you'd be like, oh, Jane Alexander, what happened to her? Jane Curtin. The rule was you had to be named Jane. That's true. And like, you have to play a distinguished role now. You're a distinguished woman. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> we love you. You're noble. <laughs> I love white mess, and I cannot wait for us to get into the undoing finale. My new, my new favorite genre of TV is white bitches transgressing. That is my new favorite <laughs> genre. <laughs> White bitches with legal problems. Yes. Well, yeah, white women being stoic. White bitches transporting themselves across the street. Nobody has crossed more streets than this woman on this show. I know, in like flowing gowns. She was Vanessa Carlton making her way <laughs> uptown, downtown. <laughs> Faces oh passed, God. and I'm homebound. <laughs> in the longest uh. coats. By the way, certain times on this show, she would be 11 foot four all of a sudden. She'd be standing next to somebody. I'd be like, oh, here she is with her beanstalk, just chilling out in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get into the undoing because I'm already getting excited. So I'm going to pause all emotion. <laughs> truly, truly. How was everyone's uh, Thanksgiving? Nothing transpired. <laughs> I literally sat in this apartment and kind of like made sure everything was clean and set my intentions for hopefully 2021 when I can have Thanksgiving with my family again. But I did the responsible thing. Describe this to us, setting your intentions. Setting my intentions literally just means making a list and repeating it over and over again until I believe it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's the only thing. That's probably productive, but also, you know, maybe the work of a psychopath, which is exciting. Oh, Truly, yeah. Well, you know, once you accidentally tell a lie so much, you start to believe it. It's mm -hmm. that same methodology applied to positive things in your life. <laughs> Do everything with intention, as Solange said. Do everything with intention. So, <laughs> I know this is the name of the game in the pandemic, but the sheer amount of content I consumed is really disgusting. Like, at any other point in my life, I would be, I don't know about ashamed of it, but worried for myself. The, like, I watched all of The Undoing. I watched most of The Crown. I saw all of Saved by the Bell, which, by the way, I don't even like. <laughs> so just the sheer amount of stuff, because you got to consume something. I watched On the Waterfront the first time since uh, high school. I guess I was doing the pandemic responsibly, but I believe it took years off my life. So I don't know who's winning. <laughs> We're going to be disagreeing about that. I loved Saved by the Bell. Oh, I have. There are things I love. There are things I love. But as a show, 
Should have been a movie. I don't know. I was thinking the same thing with content, by the way, because it was The Undoing. I'm catching up with The Crown. And then um, there's I Hate Susie. And then there's also 12 Dates of Christmas. And then I'm watching The Bachelorette. And then people are like, oh, you know what? You also need to watch Industry. And I'm like, Ken, you all calm down. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't even bring up The Flight Attendant, which I watched most of, too. Oh, yeah. I got to watch some of that, too, because I went to... NYU with Steve Yaki, the creator. Oh God, sorry, I'm choking. I'm choking. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I finally, finally watched the happiest season, which is just portrait of a lady on fire during Christmas. So <laughs> enjoyed that as well. By the way, I also watched that. I will say, I didn't know how much I needed evil Mary Steenburgen. I think she's the best part of it oh. as the mom with the. Mm. Uh, well, first of all, as you know, historically that haircut means so much to me. Going back to your. <laughs> Lee Grant, your Mary Beth Hurt, women who wear judgmental glasses and are generally playing a mother role. That's what we love. But um, conservative parents, I mean, that is a comedy goldmine. It is very funny. Yeah. Mm. Now, what is it? The is it the tight crop of the the curl, the shortness of the bang? What is it for you, Lewis? Oof. What that gets you going? Well, first of all, I believe it is derived from the Peanuts comic strip, where all the women have that haircut. So I just <laughs> I just like that. Um, and then secondly, Lucy gets you off. Oh yeah, please. Football pulling, um, amateur psychiatry, things we love that mm-hmm. will eventually be in the Undoing. <laughs> but otherwise, it's just so shocking and stark, and it indicates that there is a severity about the way you handle your life. Well, that movie is also some white mess. So we we we're just gonna have a whole white mess segment right after we come back. Black uh, Friday. White Mess Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> also in this episode, we're going to talk about those Grammy nominations that happened. Woo! They're always wild, but this year was a little extra wild. And we knew it. And we knew it, too. We talked about it two weeks ago. I had a whole keep it about it. And guess what? Every anger of mine has been fulfilled. <laughs> oh! <laughs> uh, and we will be joined by a musical genius, Rina Sawayama. Very excited for that. Oh, let's feed the stands. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back. Let's talk about Crooked's new initiative, Every Last Vote. We all want to win the Georgia runoffs, so that's why we're supporting the people making it possible, the organizers on the ground. They delivered the win for Joe Biden this year, and we can make sure they can do it again for January's Senate runoffs. Our every last vote, Peaches and Dreams Fund supports organizers on the ground via America Votes Georgia, which has long been helping groups that have built the infrastructure to mobilize their communities to vote. If you're able to support, donate at votesaveamerica.com slash every last vote. And we're back talking about white mess this week in our culture mm-hmm. section. And a white mess it was. And I guess technically I am undead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is called The Undoing. I was also calling it Gone Guy, Gone Grant, whatever one you enjoy the most. Mm, undoing what the other girls should have undid, as it were. There we go. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's talk about The Undoing. And if you have not seen the finale... And you don't know who the killer is. 
you can still keep listening because it doesn't matter. But also, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Skip ahead five minutes. <laughs> Sorry. What's a shame is that aside from the killer reveal, which, okay, I'm just going to say it now, Hugh Grant, which was the proposed killer from the start, obviously, up until the final second, and I'm, I'm talking about from the third episode on, up until like the pa- last 10 minutes of the final episode, because you remember I did give a keep it to this after episode two, which I found boring. Mm. Mm. It really ended up being pretty thrilling, so I almost have to end up recommending it because it maintains suspense throughout. But man, they add this lawyer who's amazing at the end. But my God, the final reveal that it's just what you thought it was and there's no twist whatsoever. He wasn't doing it for a weird reason or he wasn't a henchman for somebody else or whatever really is anathema to why we watch a television show. Like there should have been one less than intuitive twist going on here. I know I'm supposed to find Mm -hmm. it like rad that actually most murders like this occur, you know, it's the man closest to the killing. I know that. We all know that. I don't want to watch a TV show about that. (laughs) I was very excited to see this show in the first place because as you know, I love shows about white women getting into legal trouble. Uh, I love David E. Kelly Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I love Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. And this was, you know, a sleek sort of um, show that dove into the rich upper crust of New York City and, you know, a murder at a privileged school, you know, like one of the student's mothers. And, of course, the student is there on scholarship. And, of course, the mother was having an affair with Hugh Grant. And you're supposed to see what's happening. I would say that the ending was something that I called. Yeah. And it's something that I also thought was just the most obvious answer uh, for me because a lot of people got into the show because it was playing in the red herrings and that's how they got people watching it too, right? You know, everyone was doing that. Who killed Elena Alves? You know, even like fucking Kardashians are tweeting about it mm-hmm. the last day before the finale. And so the show was building up this whole like whodunit thing via social media and everyone having the conversation about it. The problem is that the show itself never really was playing it like it was a whodunit. People had all these suggestions for, is it the son that did it? Is it Lily Rabe that did it? Is it Donald Sutherland, you know, breaking a hip so that he could <laughs> bash in this woman's face with a skull? And I was like, the show, even though it's not particularly good, um, it was never insane enough that it was going to have a reveal like that at the end. The show, in and of itself, still took itself seriously, even though it was not that good, if that makes sense. I think it has Scream 4 syndrome, which is... I don't know if you've watched Scream 4 recently. As you're watching it... I did, on Halloween. That sounds like you. I don't know why I even asked. You realize it's a pretty thrilling mystery for the first half, and then you realize, oh wait, in order for this to be even feasible at all, it can only be three, four, or five people. And then, in all of those cases... It's also absurd based on uh, the circumstances Mm -hmm. or where they would have to be to commit these crimes or whatever. And all of the possible solutions for this were equally like, yeah, but why? And then, you know, and so you sort of knew you were winding up to an underwhelming finale. Mm Mm-hmm. I was especially irritated because like Hugh Grant was very quiet about it in interviews. Of course, he had to be. But it's like this is based on a book adapted fully from the plot. And like, did you really think that they were going to change it entirely for the sake of a miniseries? I feel like we all at least kind of knew 
if we had looked it up, which I did, uh, who who killed who killed her? But I, the first episode, my neighbor should have had me evicted the way I was hooting and hollering and laughing because I was like, "Oh, I'm getting lesbian drama. I'm getting I'm getting the the show I want to be watching." And Hugh Grant is sardonic and he's raunchy and he's Hugh Grant. Like it was so much fun, and then it turned into a murder mystery. And they killed this this Jodie Comer clone who uh, who I, I did I did love her I wanted the show to be more about her but um, I am now noticing this mysterious brooding slightly foreign actress thing that we're gonna be getting and I'm here for it I am here for it what I loved about the show was like Ira was saying it was plush it was it was waspy like I they actually I noticed and this is very scary I noticed that the school that they used for Reardon is the same school they used for St Jude's in Gossip Girl. It's the exact same location. I noticed mm-hmm. the um, the gold trimming and the... I'm just far too familiar with sets, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, I think my biggest complaint about the show was they tried to play, like, Nicole Kidman's character as potentially someone who might have had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. And... She just kept playing this like stoic, I don't know what's going on with that like slightly fresh off the the train from Barcelona detective that kept like intimidating her and making her think that she did do it and making us think she did it. It was just frustrating and it it didn't have the payoff that I wanted. Why were they treating her that way? It made no sense. No sense. Well, so part of this was the director, Suzanne Beyer, also the director of Bird Box. So much of the direction especially in that first episode was a lot of zoom ins on Nicole's face you know a lot of lot of fluttering eyes and there were constantly flashbacks or scenes of the murder or other things happening in the show that made it seem like it was from Nicole's perspective so i would say yeah. that the direction completely misled what type of show you were watching because at the end I guess you're supposed to find out that it's a woman who's being gaslit by her sociopathic husband you know and it's supposed to be ironic Mm -hmm. because she is a psychiatrist and she didn't see this coming and she's been fixing other people's relationships and you sort of get there in the last two episodes like especially once she finds the hammer and once she talks to the mom um, Hugh Grant's mom about how he had no remorse over killing the family sister I'm just sort of like the family sister by the way (laughs) I didn't kill the family dog I killed the family sister Uh, (laughs) not uh, an English phrase that (laughs) that is when I knew that that's where we were heading towards you know and especially once she got on the stand it was there's no way Nicole Kidman is taking the stand in the finale unless she knew it was about to be like some quote-unquote scene Mm -hmm. right you know she literally just did one for David E. Kelly on Big Little Lies but the difference with this show is that Susan's directing is wacky you know and was completely incongruous with the show that we got in the end, as opposed to um, Jean-Marc Vallée in Big Little Lies. You know, that at least took a soap and then sort of tried to make it like a sumptuous indie film and tricked people into thinking they were watching something glamorous and better than it was, right? Mm -hmm. This made us think that we were watching like some Ashley Judd movie, and then it ended up not being one. Wow. You actually just put it in terms that are very emotional to me. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> it's also the ending of the show. The car chase? No, well, the, well, oh, mm. we'll get to that. The ending of the show in Big Little Lies was feasible yet juicy, which I think is the ideal balance. Whereas this time, they made the very rare choice of only feasible. 
I'm not saying you need to have a soapy, melodramatic ending in order for something to be satisfying, but God, that would be so nice of you. We watched seven hours of this. My friend Chase Mitchell on Twitter had a really good point about this show, which was episodes of Law & Order do this every once in a while, where it's just the person you think it is from the beginning. But the promise then is, oh, maybe next episode it'll be really twisted, or maybe Mm -hmm. another episode from now I'll be right, as opposed to uh, just feeling duped by an episode. Whereas this, it was seven hours of waiting till something I would have guessed immediately without 900 red herrings thrown at me that now I'll feel fucking crazy. That said, I do appreciate the show for hiding a murder weapon in a violin case, which is some Miss Marple shit. I do love that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's just also the fact that if you're following a character being gaslit, you know, it's very interesting to find out that they were gaslit at the end rather than to know up front that Hugh Grant is the killer and watch him gaslighting Nicole throughout the series. Yeah. That, I feel like, is juicier. Totally, totally. Well, also, I think that's the one thing about the show that will be interesting looking back is finding all the excuses he made or all the weird psychotic ways he was manipulating people because that's not actually a huge part of the show. Mm -hmm. But then looking back and seeing like, oh, here he's blaming it on the kid or here he's saying he couldn't have killed her because he was in love with her, etc. Those might be the interesting things to look back at, especially since, by the way, Hugh Grant is one of my favorite people who basically does one thing all the time, like charm teetering into (laughs) intensity. And I was really happy to see him thrive here because, by the way, his snub for Florence Foster Jenkins is fresh on my mind. I thought he was great in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hugh Grant was definitely a highlight of the series. And I will say that going back, it's not something that I will be doing. But... I do want to point out, too, that my best friend Royce um, mentioned a moment in the show when I also was starting to figure out that it was Hugh Grant. And it's when he's telling the story about his sister dying, right? He's doing a thing where he's, like, grabbing at his eyes and, like, rubbing them almost like he's trying to make himself cry. And either that is... Hugh Grant being an excellent actor or it is um, Hugh Grant being a bad actor and trying to make himself cry in this scene. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Hugh Grant's not a bad actor. And so that's exactly what the husband was doing, forcing himself uh-huh. to cry so that he seemed remorseful over his sister's death when he actually wasn't. So I felt that same feeling in the prison fight when they're fighting with the guy and, and he gets on top of him and his finger goes in his mouth and he bites it and he doesn't let go. And then the camera pans to the blood on the cement. And I was like, you might as well have spelled out with the blood. I'm the ruthless killer because why are you showing us that he did this and felt no remorse about it? I mean, other than he was in a violent attack, but I, I think that that cue was something to pick up on for sure. Mm, well, speaking of another violent attack, oh girl, we all we we also happiest season, uh, <laughs> and which is filled with every actress I have liked twice. Yes, <laughs> and and every every Kristen Stewart role is kind of a violent attack in some way. It's a quiet violent attack. So, are y'all Kristen Stewart fans? Because you know what, yes. I think I do stand. I do, especially once she went gay. <laughs> I started to like her more. I came around to pulling for her again. I think she is amazing in a, a movie with Juliette Binoche called Clouds of Sils Maria. And she was great in Personal Shopper, a movie that's I would describe as polarizing, but a pretty awesome movie. So this movie I've described as Get Out 2, because <laughs> the plot of it is that Mackenzie Davis, who I 
absolutely adore from Home mm-hmm. Catch Fire. And Tully, where she was great, yeah. She's dating Kristen Stewart, and she suggests, you know, while they're drunk, you know, like, why don't you come home with me for the holidays? And then she sort of immediately tries to take it back the next day, so you know something's up. And then in the car on the way to her parrot's house for Christmas and is what she tells Kristen Stewart, by the way, I haven't told them you're my girlfriend because, by the way, I have not told them that I'm gay yet. That's entrapment and abuse is what that is. <laughs> Yo. That is literally <laughs> how people get murdered on the side of the road. <laughs> um, and so then the rest of the movie is this emotional abuse inflicted on Kristen Stewart where she has to hide the fact that she is a lesbian from the rest of this maybe conservative family with Mary Steenburgen and Victor Garber at the head. But my problem with the quote-unquote conservatism of this family is nothing about their personalities suggests that they're like right-wing or Republican. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just sort of like, oh, this is how we are. Like, that, it's, very, it's very quaint yeah. yeah, in a way that 2020 doesn't invite. They were uptight at worst in a way that reminds me of a movie like The Family Stone. Mm-hmm. But they didn't do anything that was like, we're part of a weird sect where we sleep on boards or whatever. Not to shade people who sleep on boards, but by the way, it's a little scary. <laughs> they never even said like anything really homophobic. Yeah. You know, to suggest that this is why she kept it a secret. You know, it just really seemed like she didn't feel like having any sort of uncomfortable conversation with her parents. At all. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like we're all from kind of, not exactly a city like that, like a quaint small town where the stories about politics and reputation and imagery of a family. But even in a, you know, it's it just wasn't believable for me in that way that, first of all, it's 2020 and they're not aware of gay people and they didn't see Kristen Stewart with her whole sternum out in that collared shirt. Like, come on, that's a lesbian. They didn't clock that. That's a lesbian, Maury. <laughs> and also that having a gay kid would be detrimental to their political careers or whatever, that seems very old, too. At this point, yeah. This, it felt like a 2004 premise in a 2020 world. That is why I kept suggesting like the old-fashionedness of it, too, because at this point, to be a conservative person also running for office, to have a gay kid is not out of the norm. You know, and if anything, a conservative would sort of use that to exploit why they are not a bad person, right? They'd be like, look, I have a gay kid. I can't, like, be homophobic. Well, they already had a black son-in-law, so that you only get one. You know, you can't have both. That's, <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, you know, it was cute. Um, I had a good time while I was drunk, but um, it was no Princess Switch too. Switched again. <laughs> and also, I just want to say again that Kristen Stewart is a strange choice for this role because the movie is basically a sitcom or wants to be a sitcom. And yeah. to murmur your way through sitcom jokes both undersells them and then shifts the tone of the entire movie, like turns it into, you know, like you said, Aida, like a, a 2009 indie film or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes the movie slightly more confusing than it needs to be. Uh, I definitely find. Chris Stewart funny like I did in Charlie's Angels she was the only bearable part of that film but I will say that her particular brand of comedy doesn't really work in a film like this which also 
I wanted to just be a little funnier. Mm-hmm. It kept thinking it was funny, and then it kept thinking it was, you know, this sort of sweet romantic drama. And I was like, you have so many hilarious actors in here who had individual scenes that were cracking me up. And so, yes. really needed just a comedy pass on this script. Totally, totally. Like, it, it's super weird that the movie was a broad comedy, and then you had Kristen Stewart, like you guys were saying. And then there was the security mm. mall guard film, which felt like a, like, Amy Schumer sketch. It was so outlandish. Um, and, you know, you have Lauren Lapkus, like, who can't play serious. Like, look at the size of her eyes. Do you know what I mean? Like, she is. She's oh, I'd too forgotten funny about that scene, which yeah. came out of nowhere. Totally. <laughs> like, like so has, ju- has so nothing else to do with the comedy that's in the rest of the movie. <laughs> and this also adds to the fact that, like Saved by the Bell, there are seven too many cast members. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that was great this weekend uh, was the Dua Lipa Club 2054 concert, which was like a live thing you signed up for and then wasn't live at all. It was a pre-produced, basically feature-length music video in which Kylie Minogue does a song. And Elton John, probably during the worst part of the show, jumped in, too. But uh, it was fabulous to see because Dua Lipa really cleaned up in the Grammy nominations. And it reminded mm-hmm. me why. These songs really, even after a year of listening to them, basically in solitary confinement, really propelling me through uh winter it turns out i also mm-hmm. appreciate that name studio 2054 is a very clever name after the album future nostalgia she somehow cornered futuristic disco <laughs> so enjoy that for her <laughs> she's the dip and dots of music that's correct <laughs> uh you know i would say that i really did enjoy it although i have been noticing how much i enjoyed dua lipa even though She's not really serving what a traditional pop star that we grew up with would be serving. For instance... You mean like juicy interviews? um, Or choreography. That? Uh, There was was a lot of Britney Spears femme fatale era uh, walking on beat. Mm -hmm. Um, That is her thing. Uh, A lot of um, side-to-side stepping. And I'm like, you know what? The songs are good. You know, so and and the production was great. And, you know, like aside from Kylie Minogue, there was also FKA Twigs, which was maybe my favorite part Mm, of the entire concert. And um, I don't know. I think that this is a benefit of quarantine. You know, you have these pre-produced concerts. Kylie did one um, that we saw a few weeks ago, and um, it feels less like watching a concert tour, you know, where, like, it's really highlighting, you know, someone's stage presence. You know, you don't really need that much stage presence in a pre-produced performance like this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure her stage presence seems to have changed since the last time I saw her, but the last time I saw Dua Lipa perform, there was not nary a stage presence. Mm. Well, it's 2020. Shiny thighs counts as dancing. I accept it. <laughs> I, w- I will say, though, that I, am all- I always forget that Dua Lipa is British until she starts talking. Because she doesn't give interviews that much. Oh, no. There, there are tons of pop stars like that where, again, like, who has ever sat and listened to Halsey speak? I don't know. Is she Danish? No guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. When we're back, we will be joined by another... British pop star, Rina Sawayama. Q. 
Keep It is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with GLAAD, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover, the shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Our guest today is one of my favorite artists working right now. Your album, I have been listening to nonstop during quarantine. And so it is very exciting to have Rina Sawayama join us on Keep It this week. Thank you for having me. Welcome. I'm so excited. Oh my god! Thanks. If your if your album if Sawayama were like an actual vinyl, it would look like a cat attacked it. Like I have played it out so much, like violently endured feline attack. Oh like, my god! Thank you. So good. I can't go to sleep without Comme des Garçons singing. Oh my god! Stop. I have. I literally haven't listened to my. I don't have a vinyl player. You got to. I just like move house. I don't like. I don't like. I'm selling cassettes. I have not. Listened into a cassette in decades i'm not gonna lie to you i forgot that british people say i moved house <laughs> what do you guys say we just say like i moved but there's a very specific phrase of i moved house is a very house, british yeah. yeah very chic yeah yeah me and my me and my friends in america we just i love like implying some britishism to them mm-hmm. somewhat Oh, you guys don't say good shout. That's a good shout. What? <laughs> Not really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's like oh, oh, what do you fancy doing? Oh, I don't know. Do you want to go get some burgers or something? Yeah, that's a good shout. Oh. That's a good shout. idea. Oh. Yeah, good shout. Good. Yeah. Shout. I'm, oh, okay. I'm definitely going to start using that, and I will definitely Please annoy Louis and Aida. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what? I know, like, Americans don't drink that much. I mean, compared to the Brits anyway, but there's one word that I absolutely love when describing someone who's really drunk and it's called trolleyed oh like hit by a trolley okay yeah like a hit by a trolley yeah like you're trolleyed love that we're by the way low on trolleys anyway like that's something wrong with america just period (laughs) yeah exactly lewis and i definitely throw back enough to be british i love that (laughs) whenever whenever i'm in the uk i I can hold my up oh good the only like britishisms that i'm super connected to are 
you pronounce Vincent van Gogh, Vincent van Gogh, which just sounds way better. Oh. And then yeah. it's never just math, it's maths, which I love. Love that. Absolutely love that. Oh my God, that's so true. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that is really weird when you say math. Also, aluminum is weird because isn't it spelled the same? Or do you guys mm. spe- like? Do you guys actually spell it aluminum? You guys do it wrong, I, I believe. I believe <laughs> no, that stop. one. Oh my God, I'm outnumbered. It's incorrect. I'm it outnumbered. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, RIP to my Twitter account, but I do want to thank you for... I was actually looking for (laughs) our conversation, because I I was like, I swear I've spoken to you, like, (laughs) where has it gone? I was looking, and I was like, yeah. I know, I was going to thank you for being an actual guest who we got on the show by me just saying, I love you so much, please come on, keep it. It worked, it rarely works. Honestly, it always works, it always, does it rarely work? (laughs) Actually, I would just like often see a Charlie Puth tweet and Ira's right below it. And I'm like, Ira, give it a rest. <laughs> We're clearly muted. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you like attaching a CV and stuff? Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the tweet, like an entire thread. Yeah, I love that. Uh, but in re-listening to this album in um, preparation for the interview, I was amazed at just how how one, how well it's held up for an album that we've all been listening to in solitary confinement, you know, as Lewis was describing earlier, you know, it's like we haven't been able to be out in the world listening to this album, which is so interesting to me because like so many of the songs I'm like, I would love to hear in a West Hollywood gay bar, you know, or like, Oh my gosh, thank you. Especially (laughs) Lucid. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I feel like that song is very West Hollywood. We heard you call it, we heard. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you had to go and get blood pop and, like truly made um, our quarantines with Chromatica. So yeah, Lucid, the oh, new song. I'm loving yes. that as well. Thank um, you. Excited for the um, deluxe edition coming out this week because you are mm-hmm. also doing a 1975 cover. Yeah. Which seems just made for me. <laughs> oh, um, it's my favorite song. It's called Love It If We Made It. And uh, I actually recorded it for The Face like mm-hmm. a couple of months ago. People were just like, can you put it on streaming platforms? Because, like, no one can actually be bothered to, like, just go to YouTube to listen to it. So then I was like, okay, fine, <laughs> let's put it on. But, yeah, I, I love that song so much. That is literally my favorite 1975 song. I've actually, I'm such a stan of so many people. Like, I need to, like, I looked at my Twitter feed and I was like, I need to stop standing people because I look like a freak. Because my every <laughs> other tweet is like, I love you, Halsey. Or like, I love you, Chloe, Halley. <laughs> like, do I? You're amazing. Like, literally, I'm like gay Twitter. It's terrible. We love that, though. We love that. <laughs> I feel like we, when we first started this show, people didn't know what to do with the fact that every time someone came on that we interviewed, we were like, spent the first five <laughs> minutes telling them how much we love them. But the thing is, we don't have people we don't like on the show. <laughs> Oh yeah, do they want it to be like completely dead or something? Like, yeah, just yeah. like and like trying to read off like a list of things, accomplishments that they've done without knowing uh-huh. like what's going on. I was Rena. Something that I think is interesting about you, and this is not a sensation that we experience here in the states much. You are a pop star with an esteemed academic background. Um, like, I, yeah. no idea what that's about. That's very, very concerning. Uh-huh. When you went to you went to Modeling College, Cambridge. And you studied yes. politics, psychology, and so- sociology. Yeah. I can't imagine you being around anybody with your similar sensibility. Was it like a, 
were you surrounded by like-minded people or is that a completely bizarre experience? I was a pop music vacuum. It was like, mm. it's weird because I grew up in, basically I was like, like I went to an inner city state school that was a multi-faith school and it was like, it was really like drummed into us, multicultural, multi-faith school. And we had so many celebrations around that. So I didn't think I was any different whatsoever. It was like, most of the people in the school were POCs and like, I didn't even think about it. And then I went to Cambridge and I was like, uh, uh. <laughs> like people's surnames are like the name of the library. <laughs> like, it's yeah. just like, it's like crazy. I don't know. In the UK, I don't know if you guys, any of you guys own red trousers, but like if you own a red trap, like pair of red chinos, like mm-hmm. you're called a toff, basically. It's a like very posh boy kind mm. of look. Mm. And it was like full of toffs, basically. And I was so shocked because it was like, first of all, I'd never seen that much wealth in my life. People come from backgrounds where they own buildings and like mm-hmm. their parents live in like the biggest, build- like whatever, you know, it's just crazy. I was scammed into going. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I was kind of was. <laughs> I was, it's so funny because I actually went to a different open day to everyone else. So like I went to something called, it's called a GEMA access scheme, which is like a, like they're trying to encourage more POCs and more people from different backgrounds to apply. And especially there's a whole thing about state school and private schools. I think it's, it's called, basically it's a big gap between who goes from state schools and who goes from private schools. And so they're trying to bridge the gap and trying to do all these schemes and stuff. But it just meant that I'm very grateful that I went and I'm very grateful that I was went to that open day. But it was like, here's all the POCs and this is exactly what Cambridge is like. And then I got there and I was like, you guys just tricked me. And it was just, it was a big shock. They ran a game. Yeah. Yeah. Genuinely. Um, but I'm so glad I went. I'm so glad. I really had a tough time. I weirdly got bullied so which is quite niche weirdly <laughs> i weirdly got bullied like it was that. weird it's weird when that. it happens in college because you're like wait mm. i thought we were over that but if you imagine if you're putting the world's most competitive people in the same university and then i'm going around saying to people that i still want to be a musician which obviously pisses people off mm-hmm. i i hate to say that i made myself a target but i think i was a bit of an easy target in that sense and yeah, I had to, like, it was just some serious bullying incidents that I actually, like, had to be, mo- my dorm had to be moved in my third year, which was really disruptive. And that from then, in my, like, despair, I, like, started hanging out with my now best friends um, at Queen's College, and they were all queer. Um, and, yeah, kind of the rest is history. But, I'm, I mean, if I hadn't met them, I really wouldn't have survived Cambridge or like I was just very severely depressed so I don't know where I would be right now but yeah man you had to move dorms in your third year so like you were in your 20s yeah oh yeah it's it's wild but you know it's the kind of situation where I remember I was in a a little house party and uh I congratulated someone on getting a first which is I don't know if you guys have the same thing but first is like a like an A star basically and I don't know like a few people get it and this girl had gotten a first and I was like, oh, well done for getting a first. That's like amazing. And then the girl next to her had always also wanted a first, but she got a 2-1, which is like the one below that. And she was just so, she, literally the girl who got a first was like, stop talking, stop talking, stop talking. Like, because the <laughs> wow. girl next to her was like scowling. Yeah, it was that kind of environment where it was just very competitive and I just walked into it completely blind I was like hey guys I want to be a musician Woo! 
<laughs> um, and then they hated me. So, well, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. But I sometimes wonder if like things like that had to happen so that you could come out and be one of the most like innovative original pop stars working right now. Um, oh, yeah, your you. music is absolutely insane. I I, I frequently listen to it and go. Who are her influences? You are a pop star <laughs> who, like, you remind me of, like, a Prince or Madonna or even someone like Harry Styles. You wear your influences and the oh things gosh, that inspire you. you in the genre of your music. Like, the hook will be grunge and punk and then the verse will go to sugar pop. And I'm like, ah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> like, so who, who has influenced you through the past? Like, when you were making music in the past, when you're thinking about making music, and even now, whether it's music or otherwise, who do you look to for inspiration? Oh God, it's always old. I hate saying old music because it's not old. It was a 2000. I don't know. It depends who you are. That's old. Gen, That's ancient. Gen Z will be like, you're old, bitch. <laughs> no, I'm inspired by music I grew up listening to, which was like a mix of J-pop because I was in Japanese school, like full Japanese school until I was about 10. And then also like early 2000s pop music, which was like quite chaotic in a good way. But looking back, it was like Limp Bizkit was number one one week and then Kylie would be number one the next week and then like Britney Spears <laughs> would be number one. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was just... But it was so great because also it was a time where it was like the Neptunes and Timberland and like mm-hmm. I just like was so inspired. And I remember listening to like Justin Timberlake's records and being like, oh my God, this song is like six minutes long. And he's just like his way of connecting album tracks together still like stays with me. Yeah, I think, I don't know, like I grew up listening to albums top to bottom and saving up to get an album or I'd stand in Virgin Megastore in Piccadilly Circus and like listen to the thing top to bottom and, you know, because like, yeah, I was just, I just remember that time and I think the charts were pretty chaotic. I could also get quite bored with the songwriting process and just trying to make what something sound the same. So I think it's really important to listen to the song. Like, what does the song want? What does the melody and the lyrics want? Where does it want to be housed right now? I always think mm. of them as like characters, like the song at the core. And it depends where they, what's the house that they're living in? You know, what's the school that they go to? It's kind of like I create a world around them. And tracks like Who's Gonna Save You Now was like a Max Martin mm. kind of production mm. at the beginning. Yeah. But then I was like, no, this needs to be stadium rock. So we just completely scrapped like months of work, which I was, I mean... Do I feel bad for it? I don't feel bad because the <laughs> You shouldn't because it's iconic. Love that uh, song. Yeah. Top three on the album. Uh, yeah, I was like, do you remember that we've got that footage yeah. from that like last headline show I did? Let's like use that. And like, we've got the sound from that, that show, like the arena bit at the beginning. And yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of reworking and keep, keep reworking things. It's interesting to hear you describe it that way, sort of like the chaos of that, because I also feel that um, particularly people our generation and slightly younger experience music in that sort of way, because that reminds me of just like you watch TRL, right? And it is the top 10 will be all those artists you mentioned. So we'll go from Korn to Britney to NSYNC and then some random like rock band like you've never heard of or like a country song. And that has sort of got me into the headspace of like when I want to listen to like a sad song, you know, that's like getting me in my feelings and reminds me of um, high school. Like I'll put on like this Avril Lavigne album because I can get there, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, take, 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 put on, take me away, uh, and just 
sing oh. that song. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you want to feel like pumped up, like you can listen to like uh, a Neptune song, like a Nelly song, you know, and it feels mm-hmm. like your album rather than like a pop album where it's like they all sonically sound the same, but you're getting different sort of emotions. It's so great to sort of listen to your album and feel like here's a rock song for when you want to feel like um sad you know like akasaka sad um gorgeous gorgeous <laughs> fucking song, that. you know yeah and it's um <laughs> but then the next song it's like it'll pick up you know and so um really just sort of like appreciate you taking me back to um high school <laughs> thank you well it took me back to high school writing about because it it's just like it's like a dream come true really like once I realized that I didn't want to be like cool anymore and I was because I think a lot of times right if you if I went into music like writing session and I was like right guys I really want to write a song that's inspired by Bon Jovi most people will be like (laughs) I do not see They, they will, most people, sorry, I forget this is a podcast, so I actually need to like talk while I'm like, making gestures, but you know, I'm making like loads of just Twitter meme gestures, but anyway, so yeah, like, with the long eyelashes, be like, yes, the, pretend I do not see. <laughs> exactly. Well, but you know, I was like, once I got used to doing that and throwing people off in sessions and also finding someone like Clarence Clarity, who just gets it and is not embarrassed at all by that sort of vibe. So yeah, that's when I got to that, that point, I was like. I was free. I was literally like, right, cool. So, you know, what? I think uh, We Out Here was inspired by Porter's Head song. Mm. And then mm. I forget which one. Don't mm. ask me. So I didn't, I didn't grow up listening to Porter's Head. I wasn't cool. But like. I didn't either. <laughs> I specifically got into Porter's Head because of Sarah Michelle Gellar yeah. in an interview. Buffy's my favorite show. And I remember yeah. in an interview, she used to kept saying, Portishead's my favorite band. So I was like, I guess I got to listen to Portishead. <laughs> and when Sarah Michelle Gellar hosted SNL, the musical guest was Portishead. Wow, you really just yes. taste. Yes. We love to see it. <laughs> taste, I love that. Yeah, see. Anyway, go on, Rena. Yeah. Well, I would probably, if I was to host SNL, I'd be like, well, here's Tattoo. Yeah. And people would be like, <laughs> <laughs> The same face, I do not see. Um, so, yeah, I got used to just throwing these, like, references that were kind of very much seemed very uncool at the time. Um, but I was like, I'm convinced I can do something cool with this. Like, I think even if it's stadium rock sounding, I think we can do something cool with this. And I think I just stuck with it and, you know, just kept reworking the song. And when you do that and you just pour a lot of love into it and just... But you have a vision... I think that's when it works. Like for me, I don't like music that is too like selfish. I don't know, mm-hmm. like self. It it sounds like here, here is me. You will eat this. That's it. Like I don't like music like that. I like music <laughs> that makes people feel like they are like a pop star. I love music. That's the kind of music I grew up listening to. That's the music that gave me joy. So yeah, I just I guess I wanted to write an album that had that like took someone completely on that journey with me and then having who's going to save you now towards the end of the record where it just feels like they've come on this journey with me now they can stand on stage with me and sound designing mm-hmm. that so it sounded like they're on stage with me rather than in the crowd was like a long process but um yeah I'm glad it worked out because I feel like people want some people were lost but I think most people weren't too lost in the mm-hmm. whole record Wow, you prefer empathy over narcissism. This business is not for you. I'm sorry you should retire. <laughs> you're, you're a true idiot. Yeah, and, I don't know why you guys have uh, me here. Your album is 
the antithesis of even selfish, you know, because it's like I love just how I mean, there was an interview, I think it was with Noisy, where you talk about how you, and this is something you'd expect for someone writing a book or creating a movie about how you went back and were talking to your parents and just sort of like asking them about um, how they felt like during your childhood and like like what emotions they were going through then, you know, um, immigrating to um, London. And so it, it, you did a lot of like emotional um, work that was excavating other people's lives, um, which I don't think, you know, a lot of people would immediately get listening to it. But once you know that, like it opens up so much more in the album. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just academic with it. And I think that's where I'm so happy I went to uni because, you know, when I was starting to do music in my mid-20s, I was like, oh, why did I go to university? Why didn't I go to, like, a music university? Then I'd be so much more whatever it was, you know. But actually going to Cambridge was, I mean, I never used that with the CV. Like, it just did not come in handy at all, like, with what I was doing. But... I learned how to learn and I learned how to process information quickly because in Cambridge you need to do two essays a week like two essays with like 10 plus reading lists per essay and it's like 2,500 word essays per week and you need to do it continuously for eight weeks per term so at the end of a term you come out with 16 essays it's like insane amounts of work so first of all they tell you that you're meant to uni is the best time of your life and you're going to enjoy, you're going to party so hard. And I 100% did not. I was just like buried in books for the whole time. And I think that's worked in my, my perceptions like favor, because I think that's what people might think of the music industry. But actually, like I work so hard and I was just, I was like, well, I don't know. It's a bit of a mirage, I think, just this amazing industry. But it's behind that, it's literally how hard you work and, you know, how much you're able to, like, I don't know, it's it's like how smart you are with how quickly you work, which I think is what Cambridge taught me. And also, like, to bring in lots of different points of analysis and, like, create something. So, um, officially, if, if we're reading your Wikipedia, you came out in 2018 in an interview with Broadly. I have the distinct feeling you were queer long before that, but... Yeah, um, I was. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, something that I love about your music, in particular, there's a song called Chosen Family, and it is clear to me that your relationship to queer people is so meaningful and a huge part of your evolution. And I was wondering how that's affected your music and uh, just what queer people have added to your life. Oh my God, where do I start? I mean, <laughs> I've had so many like tough moments in my life. I mean, the university, when I was getting bullied at university wasn't the first time that I've experienced bullying. And all through that, the people who were there for me were queer people. I didn't connect the fact that they, they were they were queer to the fact that they could then be there for you because to me, it didn't connect the fact that people had experienced so much hardship growing up and like just to fight for just existing. Um, that didn't really, I, I didn't understand that concept until like well in my 20s, I think. I was so lucky to have the friends I have now because honestly, without them, I don't think I would exist. And I say that because my I never felt like I fit in with my family um, because they're very Japanese um, and I didn't feel like they understood my identity um, of being sort of Jap Japanese but living in the UK and having completely different sort of ideals and, you know, priorities. 
I just didn't feel like I fit. And when you don't feel like you fit in your family, it's the most isolating thing as a kid. I think it's so important to tell young people also that chosen family is as good as a biological family. Like it's not, you know, it's not inferior. I mean, my chosen family is just messy as fuck, but you know, that's, that's great. Like that's what family is, you know? And, you know, I, I love them so much and we all support each other and it is such an incredible support network. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just, with chosen family, I just wanted to write a song that is just a pure love song to my friends. And like, I really had this vision of, I don't know. I think people use the word safe space a bit too much. Like maybe artists, especially like their gigs feel like a safe space. And I say that as well, but I know exactly what that means because I am in the community and I understand what these people sometimes go through. Like I know people have been kicked out of their house as teenagers when they came out or like people who haven't come out yet to their parents and they're like in their late twenties or whatever. There's just a mix of different people. And I just imagine this like cabin. Oh my God, it's so cheesy. But I imagine this cabin when I was writing it, I imagine this cabin and this people just like coming to the cabin and from, you know, all different walks of life and then telling their story. And that's just, it's just a love story. Honestly, like I just wanted to write a love letter to my friends and I just hear them. I see their struggles and I see everything. And I hope if it like reaches anyone who's younger and going through struggles too, that it like heals them in some way. Um, but yeah, that song is actually Elton John's favorite song. Oh, okay. Flex. And say that again and say that one again. Okay. Flex. Yeah. Right. My God. <laughs> <laughs> the way I talk about Elton John, like I'm just like, if, like me a year ago would be like, are you, you're joking like what are you what are you saying but yeah his um his favorite song is chosen family and i think i mean having seen rocket man have you guys seen rocket man oh sure mm. yes love oh, yes. rocket man yeah like you you get it i mean that's that's a lot of people's stories you know in different sort of different formats but so it's a very special song to me and it's a very genuine song for me yeah i mean how is that even like like elton reaching out to you and it seems like he does that to a lot of totally. younger artists, too, because, I mean, yes. I was they were talking about me and Charlie earlier. Um, I remember he was giving an interview where he talked about, you know, like, Elton reached out to him, you know, about, like, um, oh, I'm really liking your music. Like, let's work on something together. He did a thing with Fall Out Boy. You know, I, I, like, I love the fact that he, like, loves music and reaches out to artists who aren't his genre. Oh, my gosh. And he, like, fully doesn't have to. Why does he need to do that? He's Elton John. He does not need to do any of that, but he does. Um, I think he's just, he loves good songs. Like he really loves good songs and he always, I mean, he's a songwriter. So he literally sees the song within all the production and everything. And that's like, I think he's just genuinely gets so enthusiastic about good songs and the people who write good songs. And like, when I realized that, I was like, oh my God, it's such an honor because I mean, his songs are just... I mean, there's. I mean, there's no point explaining how amazing his songs are, but you know, they're iconic. They're, you know, he's a he's a legend. So yeah, just the fact that he thinks my music is good, and yeah, he just rings me on his house phone and stuff. It's quite cute. But when I <laughs> ring him back, I have to. I have to I'm just quite like, oh my god, I'm calling Elton. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here, Raina. Oh my god, thanks for having me. All 
right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Somehow, the Grammys, which are usually a mess when it comes to nominations every year anyway, were somehow even more insane this year. And also inspired a lot of artists, more so than um, Nicki Minaj or Kanye, who are usually the people who complain about the Grammy nominations. Um, A lot of people came out with their... um, sort of distaste, um, including The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, Halsey, who was mentioned yeah, our earlier. Danish, our Danish pop star, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will say this about the Grammys in general. I have not consciously done this as an award show devotee, but among the main four in the EGOT, Grammys are the ones... I end up dismissing every year. I enjoy watching the telecast because it's just, you know, wall-to-wall performances at this point. It's no different than the Billboard Awards, really, or AMAs, et cetera. Mm. But a few things are at play here that make it tricky to really care about the prestige of the awards. One, too many people nominated per category now. So I just feel like it's not even an honor if you get nominated. It's more an incredible dishonor if you don't, <laughs> uh, because based on the sheer volume of people they consider and something has to be said right now about fiona apple not getting into the oh album of God. the year ca- consideration when oh, yeah that's, that's, that's insane guys, when, like, that's an actual fucking crime right like, and then that greasy little post malone squirmed his way in i'm so mad about that that <laughs> and i don't know well, who was on the recording academy but shamika should have been on it first of all yeah and second of all shamika knew that fiona had potential you're Why telling me Shamika's not on the board? Um, That's insane. Um, the irony of this, of course, is that Fiona Apple thinks that this is all bullshit anyway. So yeah, she's, she not, she's, not, she's not sweating over it, but <laughs> yeah. truly, truly barkers for Fetch the Bolt Cutters not to be nominated. It's been 25 years since we got a Fiona Apple blacklist me speech, and I'm ready for another one. Like, just her logging into Zoom, like, this is fucking dumb. You guys are dumb. I have the best album. Bye. I made it with my dishwasher. Bye. (laughs) It must be said, by the way, that when she made that famous speech at the VMAs in the 90s, she was still a teenager, I believe. I mean, Mm -hmm. pretty incredible, uh, the, the level of iconography at play there. Yes, she specifically came out against former... Grammy head Neil Port now before. So maybe there's some bad blood there. But at the same time, you're an award show. You're supposed to not care about like petty issues like that. So yeah. now that we're dragging up this weekend stuff, now that we're dragging up what seem like grudges, it's just becoming more and more apparent this is one of the more corrupt 
uh, uh, award shows going on. But Jesus, to not give it an Album of the Year nomination, I looked it up, and the last woman over 40 to get an Album of the Year nomination was Madonna in 1998 for Ray of Light, Ray of Light. In which she oh was barely God. 40. And I, to be honest, that was not intuitive to me. I did not think I would look back and realize they never uh, uh, honor women over 40 in that category. But like the Dixie Chicks, Missy Elliott, Nora Jones, these are some of the people who had been nominated over the years. Beyonce, all under 40. Uh, uh, we don't have Bonnie Raitt's anymore to rack up these nominations. Yeah, and I also <laughs> think that a, a lot of a lot of like the album of the year nominees go to the artist that the Recording Academy believes is going to perform at their show. Mm-hmm. Like a Janae Aiko or a Jacob Collier or a uh, Dua Lipa is probably still going to be eager to perform at the Grammys. Fiona Apple's not going to your shit and singing her songs for you. No. And it kind of leads into the same problem with The Weeknd and why he believes the Grammys to be corrupt because for them, they're, it's about their bottom line rather than the artistry or the actual success of the artists that they're nominating. Of course, we know that The Weeknd would have gladly performed the Grammys because he's performing everywhere for after hours. And (laughs) I will say that if the Grammys weren't already racist in their nominations and corrupt in general, uh, I would find it more fun that The Weeknd was snubbed in the nominations, mostly because if it felt like a real award show, like at least like the Oscars or Emmys, you know, where there's some sort of excitement, you know, and it's like um, the, the the nomination process and the actual show itself feels like a part of a cultural moment as instead of just sort of like a here's some songs from this album that maybe you should go listen to, like the Grammys always feels like. The Weeknd's album, which I truly enjoyed, After Hours, it was one of my favorites of the year, is also an album that was specifically engineered to win Grammy nominations. Yes, definitely. Because if you were a Weekend mm-hmm. fan, you know that he started with his grittier sort of music, his underground, like House of Balloons shit, and then his album before After Hours was Starboy, which was like all pop sheen to it, you know? And like this one seems like exactly right in the middle neither of each of those elements you know, a very you know like phil collins-esque like here is a massive operatic album uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy you have to nominate this because i've also returned to my whole um concealing my face and making it very theatrical and um didn't work. Yeah. And by the way, Blinding Lights is one of the biggest hits of the past 10 years or something. So if we're talking yeah. about the thing that the Grammys usually love, that X and Y cross-section of artistic integrity and commercial success, you know, the thing we keep giving Taylor Swift, you know, all the, the credit for, it makes absolutely no sense that he would be shut out. They could have at least thrown suspicion off themselves a little bit and given him a nomination but my god Mm. the shutout is so drastic and so uh, there's no other word for it petty and he uh the tmz story is that he was given an ultimatum he was offered either the super bowl or the grammys and it couldn't be both which also seems unbelievably crazy to me 
So yeah, yeah, I think that at Rock Nation, of course, Jay Z and Beyonce had had booked him to I tried to book him for the Super Bowl, and he had opted to do that, and then was told he could only do one of them because, of course, it would split. Like, who's going to want to watch him perform Blinding Lights twice in a month? I guess is the logic there, um, which is stupid logic because everyone, because I would I would go watch both times. Look but at the yeah. charts. Look at the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> also, we have goldfish brains. Uh, you think I remember a performance I saw three weeks ago? <laughs> do it again. Who's the weekend what are we talking about yeah like, uh speaking of taylor yeah. yeah she did get her nominations this year and it's it's always so interesting seeing taylor get nominated because i keep thinking about the documentary where she, you know she had to sort of break down about how she wasn't nominated for reputation and her response was sort of like i guess i just have to do better you know and it seems like she's in the symbiotic relationship with like the grammys where they sort of appreciate like how much deference and respect that she pays to them right you know it's sort of like an honor for her every time that she's nominated it could be her 35th album and she'll still be sobbing about a grammy nomination you know and sort of that's sort of what they want and it's both of those albums um felt like big cultural moments you know and um folklore i guess is one because of how she made it Basically in secret from her record label, um, I really like the um, Long Pond Sessions documentary that was on um, Disney Plus this weekend. Oh, I didn't see that yet. Was it good? Yeah. yeah. I would actually recommend people watch that because it, I always enjoy hearing her talk about songwriting. You know, um, that's one of the best parts of Taylor's music to me. Like when she actually does talk about the music itself and like how she created it. And it has Jack Antonoff in it and Aaron Dessner from The National. Uh, So it is actually a really interesting documentary that made me come away re-listening to the album. Um, And she also has new renditions of the songs that were just released. But my God, it just it, it makes you wonder what the Grammys were thinking this year, but also maybe if the quarantine had something to do with it, you know? Because I think about Grammy voters and how the lead up to an award season, right, is usually like wooing voters, you know, like Oscars and Emmys. We we go to mm-hmm. those events all the time, right? And I feel like the Grammys, it's always having concerts and like doing these other things, like leading up to the nominations that obviously didn't happen this year. Mm-hmm. So you forgot about things. I just want to voice some uh, pettiness, which I believe is a word I've used several times this podcast already, but petty concerns. So Taylor Swift could very well win her third album of the year for this. She is accruing these awards way too damn fast. I'm sorry, <laughs> that should be happening when she is 45. She's already matching. She uh-huh. could she could potentially match the uh, uh, legacies of Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, and Frank Sinatra. The woman is younger than I am. I'm sorry, that's just very disturbing. <laughs> it's like if Jennifer Lawrence already had three Oscars, you know, and it's like, but mm-hmm. then what does Meryl's career mean? I'm just sorry, ratios-wise... It's not working out for me, and I need everybody to slow it down. I don't care how much you love folklore or being in the woods or marijuana or all the things that make that album great for people. <laughs> I was very stoned when I watched the documentary. That, I, it, it tracks. I remember uh, when you were on Twitter, RIP, and that album came out, and you said, I have to get high for this. It's about being grown. <laughs> Uh, thank you for remembering the hits, Louis. I know you. I knew you. I knew you secretly. <laughs> you classics. secretly cared. <laughs> I'll host your Time Warner tweets compilation commercial. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Getting away from The weekend, though, who has very valid criticisms of the Grammys, can we please talk about... <laughs> This heifer, Justin Bieber. Bro, what are you mad about? His, what are you mad about? His Instagram screed about how, excuse me, Grammys, um, I set out to make an R&B album, and you nominated it for pop. And, well, I just felt like this is disrespectful. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, okay? Can you, can you imagine how many black people in history... In history, I can't believe I wanted to get pop nominations, and then the Grammys were like, "Well, here nominated in urban hip hop Negro, <laughs> yeah, contemporary Wade in the Water R and B." I don't know what's wrong with that man. I mean, he's just so frustrating. And like the last track he made with um, Benny Blanco, I think, is a, literally a song where he is yodeling. Like, what is R and B about that, sir? Like, you don't, you don't. Just because you're shirtless in a Drake video does not mean you get to just make R and B albums like that. He, he's fine. He's okay. He needs. That boy needs a break. He needs to just go love his wife and take a pause. Also, he's complaining about the category in which he was placed. Is that not what his record label chose? I don't know. It seems like you should be mad at Scoot Ron. Right. <laughs> and by the way, everybody else is, so it's not hard. Yeah. 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 Go, go call up Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You want an advocate? Get Taylor on your side. Shit. <laughs> Taylor's sitting, waiting in um, Bieber's church. Uh, she turns a light on on the desk. I've been waiting for you to turn against Scooter. <laughs> uh well, those are our Grammy nominations, and I guess we got to watch the show this year. <laughs> oh, and go uh, Megan the Stallion for Best New Artist. Woo. Yes, yes. Yeah, hopefully. Some good news. And not Doja Cat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. What are we keeping today? What are we severely underwhelmed by, guys? <laughs> what is it? What are we keeping this week? I can go first, um, especially because I'm going to get canceled for this opinion or whatever the new version of getting canceled is. Maybe just like drawn and quartered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tarred and feathered. Something's going to happen to me. Um, Meg Thee Stallion dropped her debut album, Good News which was unfortunately not the best news I have received this week. <laughs> while I'm wearing my good news shirt? I know. While you are decked in the merch, which, honey, I will buy. I support Meg through and through. Like, I will definitely she, take my coin, girl. I love and support you. But was so disappointed and, again, severely underwhelmed by this debut album. We've gotten Tina Snow. We've gotten Sugar. We've gotten Fever. All extended plays and mixtapes. So that's why you're like, I have six playlists full of Meg Thee Stallion music. Like, what, what do you mean debut album? But this is her first studio album that she's put out. You know, I wanted a miseducation of Lauryn Hill from her. I wanted a good kid, Mad City. I wanted an Illmatic. I wanted Meg to give us something that was heartfelt while still being raunchy. While still, be I just expected a little bit more from Meg because I know that she can do it. But it feels like her team, Meg... Her label, everybody kind of like pushed her to put an album out after what happened to her instead of just like letting her sit in this trauma and experience what the world and these stupid Tory Lanez niggas have done to her. 
and and Tory Lanez himself. And I, I was just it's it's so disappointing because I know Meg is so talented and she's beautiful and you know is such a important staple in the rap community that I, I just wanted this album to be better. And mm-hmm. black women need to be protected, but albums should also be mixed and mastered. And this didn't even feel like somebody had gone <laughs> out of their way to make sure it was done. Like, I was listening to the album like, bruh, these are demos. Like, this is not a finished album. There's just no way. There's no way. Um, she has a track. The, the Like, the official Tory Lanez diss track is the, the Who Shot You Biggie beat. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's just no detail. Not a lot of strong disses. Like, she has said more scathing things about this nigga in her Instagram lives than she did in the official diss track. So yeah, the book is closed, but I don't even know what the story was. I did like you're not popping, you're just on the remix. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> I think that's a what's popping, you know, Jack Harlow yeah. diss. And and I mean Jack Harlow said that Tory Lanez had the best verse on that. And I was like, bro, were we listening to the same song? Like you don't gotta lie, sir. You don't got to. <laughs> no, wait, I actually have not listened to this album yet. Would you say the problem is it feels like it's all in the vein of the more most recent single, Body. So it's like party music, but not enough personal. Yeah, it's exactly that. Most of the tracks kind of have the same sentiment where it's just like loosely raunchy. It's not even as specific and like inappropriate mm-hmm. as a, as wet as pussy was or these tracks that she was giving us before. The best track on it is the Savage remix. That like that song turns on and you're like, oh, a different person produced this. Mm. Like I can hear Meg's vocals. Everything is crisp. Everything is clear. Like. And and then also, because Meg is such a precious person in the rap community, a lot of people aren't really talking honestly about this album. And it's just to say, like, hey, you your mixtapes are so much better than this album that you put out. Girl, I know you can do better. This clearly means you didn't give yourself space to deal with what's happening to you. And I'm not saying that all black women can't be resilient, but it's also the give yourself the space to deal with that and to express mm-hmm. your emotions in a different way, like... That's where I'm at. You know, I am actually a fan of the album, although I will say that I don't listen to it all the way through the way that I used to mm-hmm. when it first dropped. I picked and chosen uh, like the few that I'm really into and vibing with, but it definitely is not Tina Snow or Fever for me. And uh-uh. I would say if there's a slight for it, it's, it's a very commercial, glossy album. Yeah. You know, it's like there's songs like, Go Crazy is my favorite on it, but also just because it, we finally got an amazing Big Sean verse, which we haven't had in years. And of course, <laughs> Two Chains is fire on it as well. Yeah. And I like the wordplay on it. But what I miss about the mixtapes is like I was playing for a friend, the um, Running Up Freestyle, you know? And it mm. was, I just miss that raw sort of like Meg, because like I love the Body video, and I actually think Body's a fucking fantastic song um, and a great commercial song for her to be releasing so that she can do her other rap shit because for me, the album is missing the fact that like she's a fucking amazing rapper. Yeah. You know? And so you, she could dance and do all that shit too. Like she's from Houston. They, they, there's something in the water. They, they can do every fucking thing. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> At her core, she is an amazing rapper and, you know, like, and great MC. And I'm just sort of, like, missing that, you know? Like, I don't need the cute rhymes in a song, you know? I just want to hear you spit. The command she has is unforgettable. I always say, in the WAP video, Cardi B feels like the receptionist <laughs> at that house and Megan The Stallion is the madam. Like, who you paid the top yeah. dollar for. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I will still be bumping the, the album. Come on. Like, again, yes. this is all prefaced with Meg is my favorite rapper out right now and will probably be for the next few years. And I'm excited to see how she grows and how she opens up and maybe does talk about her family life and gives us uh, a little bit more insight into how she's feeling. So. Also, I want to mm-hmm. add, she is my favorite award show performer right now. Like, the level she brings. Yeah. Like, the choreography is always very tight. Just, like, the way she glances at the camera, glances at the audience, keeps us in the palm of she's her hand. So we need people like mm-hmm. that right now and and I say that as a part from Dua Lipa who I think is good but is not like Iron Fist like Meg the Stallion is more related to a Madonna than you know other pop stars right now it's two things I know about y'all no matter what we're talking about <laughs> Ira's gonna find a way to talk about Buffy <laughs> and Lewis is gonna bring up Dua Lipa no matter what <laughs> done solved me true I, I was I was truly like am I gonna bring up Buffy soon and then I was like oh I talked about it with Rita <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> ah. uh, All right, boss was, baby. Okay, watch yourself. Yeah, everybody wants to know how Aida feels about boss the boss baby, baby too. Too. And look, I'm not giving the world what they want. I'm not commenting on that. <laughs> Lewis, what is your keep it? Uh, my keep it. I went through the Wikipedia of my brain to remember even more stuff I watched over this break, and I just remembered there's a new Showtime documentary about beloved late comedian John Belushi called Belushi. And my keep it is to that for a couple reasons. One, I actually watched this documentary inquisitively because for me, John Belushi is somebody that people, I'll say writers for Rolling Stone, but like writers of a certain age who care about pop culture really (laughs) still believe in. Uh, That, you know, the Blues Brothers is one of the greatest comedies ever, that John Belushi is one of the best SNL cast members ever. And for me, I almost get none of it. Like, I don't get what his Bumblebee sketch was. I don't get the Blues Brothers. And in fact, (laughs) if you watch a lot of old SNL back, and by that I mean 1975 to 1980, and I want to give special shout out to Dave Holmes, who pointed this out on Twitter rather memorably once. It is a very confusing show. Like, for the hour and a half that the show is on, it's like sometimes not comedy, or sometimes it's supposed to be sentimental, or everything's just weird, and it's kind of chasing Monty Python, and... John Belushi eventually becomes the center of that mess, and he's incredibly loud, but without, for me, the heart that someone like Chris Farley brings or the aptitude and amazing timing of someone like Melissa McCarthy. So I went to this documentary thinking, oh, this will unpack it for me. And it really didn't get into it at all. It used a lot of audio interviews from a previously written book about John Belushi, and it didn't decode him for me. It didn't unpack why he became such a rock star to everybody, other than he was, you know, louder than the average comic. And it also glosses over the fact that he specifically told the female writers on staff of SNL that they weren't funny and he wasn't going to do their sketches. So the fact that it was not interested in unpacking why he was this toxic person and became a more toxic person as the years went by and his drug abuse became worse made it feel so skippable to me. And I'm sorry it didn't do more for me because I I was open to that conversation. Mm. I'm not really a Belushi stan, um, to be honest, but I do love the Blues Brothers. I don't get it at all. Mm. Truly, I don't want to watch them make no, that I music. Don't get it. And now I and now people think that's what the blues looks like. I'm fine. It's very confusing to me. And by the way, they were Best oh. New Artist nominees, which is among. We'll talk. About, that's an age-old Grammy mishap. We're talking about new ones. That's the old one. 
<laughs> but I hear Belushi out. I really do. Like, I women are just fundamentally unfunny. You know, like there's there's nothing like it is his. It was his job to sabotage the pieces written by them. Like there was mm-hmm. no reason for them to be even staffed. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I hear him out. I really do. Thank Your you. sensitivity actually, is so inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm part of the problem because I actually do prefer Blues Brothers 2000. I mean, well, what you should prefer is a hospital visit because what's happening there? Where they add like a child to the Blues Brothers? Unacceptable. <laughs> I saw that movie when I was a child. I haven't seen it since, but I remember Boffin. Okay, well, it came out in 2000, so you were 14 and not a child. So I'm doing the math and you knew better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing the well, maths and you need that. Okay. <laughs> I think I still was a child, Kate Mara. Oh, all right. All right. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, FX on Hulu. <laughs> <laughs> all right. My keep it this week is to <laughs> My keep it this week mm. is to who Selena Gomez fans mm. who are upset. With the Saved by the Bell reboot on Peacock. Why they mad? There's a lot of reasons to be upset with the Saved by the Bell reboot on Peacock, mostly because I have to pay for Peacock now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I really like the show. Uh, and only the first episode was free. And so you had to pay for Peacock to get the other nine. What a scam. But it worked. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> They're specifically mad, and I want to preface this by also saying that I've established on the show that I am a Selena Gomez fan. Yeah. I follow her on Instagram. I've seen Selena Gomez chef, okay? <laughs> I watch her cooking show on HBO Max. Lose You to Love uh, Me is one of the definitive songs of the past couple of years. Fabulous song. So the episode in question is one where the principal takes away everyone in school cell phones, right? And so the joke in the show is that students without access to the internet sort of devolve into chaos. Uh, And specifically, there's a joke about how a character can't remember who donated their kidney to Selena Gomez. And so they're arguing about whether it was Demi Lovato or someone else. And the joke of it is not making fun of Selena Gomez's kidney surgery. It is making fun of the fact that teenagers cannot remember anything without using their cell phone as a support system. And so it devolves into more chaos, and then they're fighting over this, and then there is graffiti on the wall that says, does Selena Gomez even have kidneys? Which is (laughs) hilarious, and also not a dig against Selena Gomez. She's not the butt of the joke at all. And so Selena Gomez fans see a clip of this and the narrative online becomes they are making fun of Selena Gomez's kidney transplant and they're shaming people who need kidney transplants. And this is one of the things that has made me happy to not be on that goddamn website anymore because that is asinine. Yeah. Well, well, you came out against Selenators, which I believe is the world's largest population group. So I do think that's brave uh, based on what I see on Instagram because be- she has something like, it's like the population of China, population of India, Selena Gomez fans, the United States. You know, yeah. like, so congrats to you for just uh, alienating everybody. Here's my problem with the Saved by the Bell TV show. I just feel like they layered a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine 
randomly on top of Saved by the Bell. To me, they don't go together at all. And I'm watching someone like Mario Lopez fumble through very verbose jokes. And occasionally it's funny because the joke writing itself is not the problem at all. Tracy Wigfield, who um, is a 30 Rock alum, and the show feels very 30 Rocky. And she also did... um, Great news. uh, Great news and Mindy Project. First of all, there are 20 cast members on this show, and five of them, I think, easily could probably go. (laughs) But, uh, uh, for instance, one of the better actors on the show, Josie Toda, who plays the kind of bratty, uh, 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 spitfire rich girl on the show, is just Jenna Maroney to me from 30 Rock. Like, Mm. we we just have, like, this stock character we bring back Mm. again and again. And we, we already have Jenna Maroney is the short answer to that. But also... There's something about how fast the dialogue is in a show like 30 Rock and Veep that is fitting. On 30 Rock, we're all like fast-talking little snots because we're entertainers and we give America one thing and amongst our own ranks, we're total assholes. It's the same thing on Veep, right? We are you know, polite to the public and then petty and stupid and conniving otherwise. On this show, it's like, why are teenagers talking like snooty adults i don't know it doesn't feel it it doesn't feel organic to me it works for me you know and i also like when teenagers talk however adults decide they want to sort of like a dawson's creek thing yeah riverdale that what Mm -hmm. what interests me about josie tota's character actually is that she is sort of the jenna maroney sort of um nicole richie on great news but what's interesting about her character is that she acknowledges that she used to be a bitch and she used to be mean and she's also trying to be a nicer person now so it adds a different layer um onto that character for me i think one of the problems with saved by the bell unfortunately is that the kids are all fucking amazing and i think that elizabeth berkeley gets so much better by the end of the series totally but the episode eight like completely came to a halt when mark paul gosler and tiffany Thiessen there and then they're in scenes with mario and elizabeth and for me it feels a lot like the 90210 reboot in that there was the show that was the 90210 reboot. And then to get people to watch, they also had Brandon and Kelly and Brenda, you know, all of them just hanging out on the show as well, um, which was trying to blend both of those worlds, but the shows were incongruous to one another. And, you know, if you're just going to reboot it, you might as well just reboot it uh, and not include, you know, the entire show that used to exist as well. And I think just like the 90210 reboot, those older cast members will all be gone by next season. Right. A special shout out to Mac Morris, the kid of Zach Morris, who's the star of the show. I thought he did an awesome <laughs> job. I thought he, yeah. So, and like specifically like self-absorbed and um, mm-hmm. really letting the uh, Baroque dialogue flow off the tongue in a way that feels believable to what a snot he is. The actor who plays Devante is also fantastic to me too because I really like seeing this representation of this like, sullen like black kid on tv but who's also like really in the theater it got me <laughs> oh you don't say <laughs> no <laughs> that's serving young ira uh, anyway <laughs> thank you again to rita sawayama for joining us this week and go listen to the fucking deluxe version of sawayama on friday uh i cannot wait for that fucking 1975 cover we will see you next week Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. 
Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you.